0: Welcome back to another episode of Outside In. I'm your host, Wes Rashid. Now, no one expects to become homeless, least of all when you're still a kid. But sadly, it is a reality for many young people. And today we have Brooke Morgan Henry Rennie, who has lived this life. Yet her story is one of resilience, a thought-provoking and uplifting one that I hope you'll feel inspired by. Hello, Brooke Morgan.
1: Hello, Wes. How are you?
0: Yeah, really good, thanks. And it's... uh, Great to have you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: What I'd like to do is start off with your experiences with homelessness and depression.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You had a challenging childhood, uh, having to step up and take big responsibilities at a young age. Can you walk me through those experiences?
1: I think first and foremost, it's really important for me to say I had a great upbringing um, until my life done a 180, until life happened. Um, so, uh, you know, I travelled a lot with my mum, was taught great mantras by my like dad, grandparents. I came from a lovely, loving home. And I guess, you know, when grief strikes, specifically unexpectedly, that can morph into something ugly. And that's what I would say my truth was, um, yeah, grief done a 180 on uh, my mum and I. um, And that's what kind of led to the depression and like homelessness. So my mum and I have always been best friends, as I always say. And, you know, my uncle passed away unexpectedly um, at a very tender age in his early 30s. And effectively, that was like my mum's first baby. So, you know, losing him with such a shock, shock death, um, literally flipped her world upside down. And we went from, you know, being best friends to like living in a really hostile environment, meaning the relationship between her and I. um, And then, you know, who she went from happy, go lucky, go getter um, to not eating, not talking, not working in the space of like months. um, And there was no kind of explanation. So I'd lost my uncle but I had also effectively lost my best friend in that process and I think being at such a tender age it wasn't something that I could mentally understand, emotionally process and it was like okay you understand sadness because we all understand a basic emotional spectrum. But I think when you start to tap into grief and mental health, specifically depression, if you're not necessarily taught about that and you don't have, you're not privy to seeing a direct experience of it, there's no reason for you to actually talk about it. So now it's really good that the education around mental health is being pushed to the front a bit more before you're just met with it, you know. Sure. So
0: I think you're totally right about the mental health mm. being now spoken more openly think we need to do more about that yeah and double down on that yeah and i think you're a shining example that actually you can get through adversity yeah
1: absolutely what age
0: were you at time
1: um trauma messes up your um memory a little bit but uh, between the ages of i lived with my nan for about a year and a half Mm -hmm. i moved into my hostel at 16 so i reckon between the ages of 12 to 14? That's probably when it all, for 12, 13 is probably when it all started. You know, you don't just move out to somewhere else, right? Sure. Hard enough, you're depressed, I'm out. Um, and I'm a kid, so there was no like, oh yeah, I'm out, don't like it here. Um, But there was processes and it took time to kind of, for the relationship to really dilapidate. Talk so, us through that. Well, you know, it, first of all, it was sadness and that's okay because we was all sad. And then my mum's sadness just didn't go away. And it was like, okay, you're sad. Okay, you've been sad for a month now. That's okay. Okay, you've been sad for three months now. This is getting a bit annoying. (laughs) Okay, you've been sad for five months now. I no longer like you. Because you, it just felt like she had changed as a person. And I don't know if I'd recognised the change. I just knew I didn't like the way she was anymore. And I just knew that, you know, well, where's my best friend gone? And it sounds really selfish. But because I wasn't able to put two and two together and piece it together like an adult, um, I was selfish in my approach. So I just began to hate her. Just yeah. began to really resent her. I just didn't want to talk to her. It would get to the point where, you know, you go and get your dinner money in the morning from your mum, three pounds. And it would just get to the point where I just wasn't, just didn't want to get dinner money. I just, cause I just didn't want to talk to her. And then I would like try and steal big amounts of money for her. So, so so I didn't need to go in her and see her every morning. So I'd like, if I saw 20 pounds in her bag, I'll try and steal it. Cause then that's like, right, that's cool. That's about a week I can get through with that. Um, (laughs) and maybe I can buy and sell some donuts and some chocolates and get more money. So I don't need to, feature and then it got to the point where she was like good morning brooke morgan and you know like kind of asserting herself and like you're going to be respectful in my house no matter how you know unwell i am or how much i'm not in the best of space you're still going to respect me because i'm still your parent and like loads of like caribbean people will really understand that you'll probably resonate with that a bit yourself like you're not gonna <laughs> sure. do the not talking to me in my house you are under my roof and you will respect me and then i just hated her for that because it was like morning mom how are you this morning mom? Fine. fine what fine mummy. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like can i have my dinner money please pardon can i have my dinner money please can i have my dinner money please who Mummy. <laughs> so I, I guess she was still trying to create that level of intimacy. Like I'm still your mom. Um, she was doing it in a bit more of a harsher way, and just I'm a teenager, so I don't want to do it anymore.
0: Um, so. You had that less and less of a connection because yeah. of the depression that she felt and fell into.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're not. you like why? In my head, I just thought, why do you think you can talk to me like that? It
0: you're got not... to a point when you wrote a letter to the local authority.
1: Yeah. So, um. Uh, so I had stayed at my nan for a year and a half. Um, but then with my nan, um, I was just stressing her out. So she kind of like kicked me out back. But I was kind of working my way up. No one actually knows this. I was working my way up to say that I wanted to come back to live with my mum. Because we had went to, she had taken me on a trip as like a bonding trip. and We went to Turkey um, and it was lovely and it felt like old times again. So I was like, oh my God, she's back. Like, we can do this again. That's my best friend Um And then um, I was kind of going to be like, right, I'm coming back. And then I think I spent, like, maybe four or five days at my mum's. And then uh, my dad came and dumped all my black bags back at my mum's and was like, give me my key back. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I was stressing my nan out. um, And then... So obviously I was put back at my mum's, um, but because it was like too quick, too soon, I hadn't mentally done the process that I was prepared to do, and that I was working myself up to do. Um, it was just, it was just too much, and within about a week or two, I was down the council again because it just went right back to like because we had spent like a year and a half apart. Now it was like, oh, I've really changed. Like, oh, in, in what
0: way? What way?
1: I just grown up a lot, you know. I was, like, kind of a little bit kind of running the house, making sure my little brother was, like, taken care of, making sure he was getting to school and stuff like that. And it was just the small things. that she was still doing stuff, but I feel like emotionally I'd taken on a lot. Um, Sure. And I don't think... I feel like I was burdened with a lot. I don't know if I was actually doing a lot, but it just felt a lot. So I can't say what I was doing or not. But, yeah, I was definitely... i definitely taken and stepped up a lot.
0: Because you're looking after your brother as well. Yeah. And you're like 12 to 14 years old at this stage. That's a lot of pressure to take on a young child.
1: Yeah. I think just, I think the not understanding it was the worst part about it. Um, You know, when you're always in something, you never can, you always think, oh, this is the end now. This is how it's going to be forever. Until you pass it and you're like, oh. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) It doesn't feel as heavy.
0: Can you tell us more about your experiences with homelessness then? How you know, how they impacted you?
1: Yeah, so within about two weeks, I was like, "Right, we can't do this. Uh, I think we went to, like, some family mediation place down the council, (sighs) walked in that room and you could cut the tension with a knife. Like, it was sick. Like, the lady was like, "Okay, so what's wrong? And it was, like, a bit too far gone for, okay, what's wrong? Um, The problem was, like, literally sitting on one of the chairs along with us and we both just sat there in silence most longest and awkward silence ever and then my mum was like oh that's the problem and I was like "Oh God!" obviously keep composed keep keep the anger because anger saved me a lot of the time it it masqueraded for me um when I just felt small and when I felt soft and when I felt scared it was just like well I'm just gonna sit here vex no one can tell me anything.
0: Is that your natural defense mechanism kicking in?
1: Yeah coping strategy unhealthy one but it saves me survival mechanism I would call it But yeah, it saved me and anger is a really big motivator for me now. Like when I get angry about something, I'm going to do something about it because I'm angry. Sadness, I guess, because the way I've seen sadness, it doesn't do anything. It lulls you. And there's only so much. I always say this. There's only so much time someone can sit and hug you while you cry. It's horrible. But anger is more like a motivator for me. I just think, right. I'm gonna do something about it, but yeah. Back to your question, like homelessness, the experience. I was down the council, and then I just kept going to the council and was like, right, I don't have anywhere to go. And they was like, where did you stay last night? And I was like, at my boyfriend's. I had a little boyfriend at the time. Oh, bless his self. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they was like, oh, we'll go back there. And I'm like, I can't stay there. Like we're in a box room in a single bed. Like this is not, this is not my life. And then I just kept going down there, I kept going down there, just sitting in sitting in the office and just crying with like a black bag. And then they was assessing me at six form. So like social workers came into six form, they assessed my nan's house always feel bad about that because my nan's house was like every nan's house it was lovely warm food there's no reason for a social worker to come in and assess my nan's house but they did just to make sure where I was living was safe at the time when I was living there um so they had known about the problem from before and then I just kept getting worse and worse at sixth form like my behavior kept getting worse I kept getting more withdrawn kept having more like random rageful outbursts and my head of year always helped me and she was like like, what's happening and I'm like I can't live at home and like no one's listening to me like I know how to cook I know how to clean my mum taught me how to pay bills like just put me in a flat somewhere I know how to do it I don't know how you're going to pay for it but I know how to do it I'll get a job soon as and then there was a council lady from social services and she came and she was like oh we found a hostel for you do you want to be in this one or that one? Because there's spaces at both and I picked that one. And then I went to see it, had an assessment at the hostel and there was like, to see if it would be a fit. And um, yeah, then there was like, okay, you've got your place. And yeah, but that was a very long process. So please do not take that as quick as I've said it. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: rediscovered a love for education while you were at the youth hostel. Yeah. Can you talk me through that?
1: I just wanted to do well. GCSE had robbed me of my Depression had robbed me of my GCSEs, so I just wanted to do well. You know, I I basically failed school. I left with one B in English, which is ironic because I'm chronically dyslexic. Um, <laughs> I flopped everything else, Ds, Es, Us, Fs. And I just didn't want to do that in sixth form. I'd like to get into sixth form, I got onto the free courses I wanted to get onto. Um, You wasn't even supposed to have those combination of free courses, but I'd done a monologue for my to get into Drama Academy and then I sung to get into music. And the kind of creative heads of department sat and went, have you heard this girl? Yeah, she came in and done an amazing monologue. The singing teacher was like, yeah, she came in and blew my socks off. She can sing better than me. And then she was like, and then they was like, right, you can do whatever you want. I didn't even have the grades to get into. I spoke to the head teacher and he was like, well, you know, you need, you're need you going to need to do health and social care. And I was like, at this point, I'll do whatever to just get into the school. I just need to do it. So I came out of a distinction, star distinction and a merit in media, music and drama. And I just I just wanted to do well.
0: Yeah, congratulations. Thank Amazing. You.
1: stuff. <laughs> Thank
0: you. I love it when you speak because. You know, clearly, you've got this like strong sense of resilience yeah. as you speak, but also this warmth that people might not be able to you know, feel this the way that I can. But I think that just sa- says a lot about your character.
1: Appreciate
0: it. I just want to touch on the fact that you were a kid because mental health at that age,
1: yeah.
0: it was affected. So how did you view mental health when you were a child?
1: I didn't. There was no conversation about it. There was no reason for us to have a conversation about it because we hadn't been met with it. And I feel like, like we were saying earlier, I think that's why it's so important for everybody to just know, just know a little bit. So it's not so, how do you put this? It's not so detrimental when you meet it because if you know a little bit about something, it's like, oh, I've heard about that somewhere, something. And then maybe where you heard about it from, you can go back and access support and access help. But when you've never heard about it, you don't know anything about mental health. I think the only thing people actually know about mental health is the slurs. Oh, she's crazy. Or, oh, pff, her head's bursted. Or whatever. I don't even know if people say that. Don't use that one. Um, but, yeah, her head's gone. Uh, he's crazy, man. Oh, he does drugs. And, like, people don't actually realise these are mental health conditions. And let's understand what's happening. Because I think when you start to understand mental health, you step into a spirit of compassion and a spirit of empathy, because if that was you and like, we're all like, as much as they say we're all one paycheck away from homelessness, we're all one experience away from our minds cracking, sure. you know? So take time when you're, when you're laughing at people and when you're mocking people, because the people that you mock and laugh at could be you.
0: Yeah. Sometimes it's about what happens in the shadows, yeah. not, you know, these slurs that you see
1: Yeah,
0: as an example of, you know, someone acting out a problem with mental health.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how do you view mental health now?
1: Depending on what mental health condition you have, it could be your superpower. Okay. Explain. (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's it's, it's almost like, and I don't want to offend anyone by saying this, this is just my perspective and my opinion. It's almost like I would call dyslexia a learning difficulty. I think that's how it's categorised. I'm maybe wrong, or to be dyslexic is to be neurodivergent. I see my lens and my dyslexia as a superpower. There's things because of my dyslexia. I view things a certain way because of my dyslexia. I pick up on things that no one else picks up on just because of the way I've seen it. And, oh, I didn't. Sometimes it's like letters flipped around um, or numbers flipped around and then I create a whole new way to do it sometimes it's letters flipped around or numbers flipped around and I create a whole new way to do it. And because of my mistake, it turns out to be a beautiful one. Um, I think mental health is obviously a little bit different than that, depending on what mental health condition you have, because you can be a danger to yourself and others. Um, But I think once you... It's just hard to broadly speak. I think sometimes once you find the combination of medications for you to kind of, like, survive and thrive in a normal and I say that with my little fingers, inverted commas, normal life, then you can like thrive.
0: How important is it for you to have personal conne- connections and a, and a network supporting you with your help, mental health?
1: Uh, absolutely. I always talk, I teach validation. Um, it's so important because we're in a, in a society where instant gratification and instant validation is just so like, oh, the it thing. But to have a network, and I call them my validation hub. The people who I actively seek healthy validation from is so important because when I get into my ego or when I'm like, forget who I am, they're there to either check me or remind me. So like, babe, (laughs) you're not that, sit down. Or, babe, you are that girl and don't forget it. Do you want me to pull up the achievements? They're so long, like, remember who you are, get up now. You've had enough time crying, come on, let's go. But yeah, with mental health and without mental health, it's just so important to have healthy val- a healthy validation system.
0: On the dyslexia, can I just say that again? <laughs> dyslexia <Yeah>. point. <laughs> Many successful entrepreneurs yeah. have found a way.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah, you're a shining example of
1: that. Thank you.
0: I just want to touch on what it was like having to look after your brother. What was that like for you?
1: I mean, my mum done such a good job at growing us up and at instilling important values and morals in us but i'm not going to sit here and be like oh yeah it was so easy because i think i don't even uh, he he was just amazing he just done the best he could do as well given the situation he was in and i guess his story would be very different to mine so when I start my podcast, I'll probably have him on and then we can answer that question fully. Yeah. Um, but yeah. he. he but it he, sounds
0: like you got on and yeah. he was, yeah.
1: Yeah, my little twin, my little soldier. He's amazing. And like now he's a bit older. He turned 21 the other day. Um, you can see how much he's soaked up. So all of us nagging and don't do that. Don't do that. Do this. And this is how you do this. Uh, he's just amazing. A little sponge and he soaked up all the right things. So dead proud of him.
0: If you're looking back at that moment now, your younger self, what would you what would you say
1: to her? I wouldn't have no advice for her. I think she done everything the best she could do. So in saying that I have no regrets, I would probably say, Oh, I know what I would say to my younger self. Guys don't want to be your friend. They don't. No. No, they don't guys don't want to be your friend. Such a young age, you know, guys don't want to be your friend. And I would actually have a sit down with myself. This is going to sound super vain, but say you're actually a pretty little girl. Because I've always seen myself as one of the boys. I'm rough. I'm like, yeah, I can play football. I can do this. But you're actually a pretty little girl. So when you're hanging out with those boys that you think they think of you as one of the boys, they don't. (laughs) They don't. And so.
0: Was there a particular experience that you can call out?
1: Yeah, I've had quite a few uh, not nice experiences with men, boys actually because men men are good people, boys boys are yes. the ones that struggle. Yeah, quite a few not nice uh violations actually with okay. boys. So Are you but, talking
0: there specifically about
1: uh sexually sexual sexual violations with okay. boys? Um I think the lack of teaching about actual consent and the nuances of that between boys and girls is a major problem. And that's definitely one I will tackle head on. Yeah, killing this whole lads culture thing because it's lad culture until it ends up as rape, <laughs> you know. So, you know, just just little stuff like that. But I actually sit myself down and like, you're actually a pretty girl. Get some more female friends. Like, boys are not your friends. <laughs> but I do have some lovely male friends now, Um, some amazing men that I'm around. And their kind of understanding of how the world works and how women work is is quite clear so that's that's lovely that warms my heart
0: that's great i want to talk to you about your homeless youth hostel Mm. it's pretty well known but what was your first impression of it
1: i went in there it was like a bare room but i always say you never appreciate space until space is the one thing you need um and even though the room was bare, it automatically felt like home because what I knew I could do with it. So, like, when I'd settled in and, like, I'd had my friends or my cousins over, um, they'll be like, or even other people, my peers in there. Oh, my God. When I walk through your room, this just looks like a normal house. Like, everyone else's room just looks mad. But your house, your one looks like a proper house. Like, bruh, like... I want my room to look like this and I'm like yeah because like I had all my pictures on my wall of everyone like collages and like you know just I just made it home because for me I home is within me first and foremost so whatever space I step into because I'm first and foremost comfortable in self home will forever be where I am and when I'm comfortable in myself that is a representation of my exterior So yeah, I just made it home. It was it was lovely. I was met with I'm a yes girl. So any opportunity I see, I'm gonna take it. Like I set up my room, probably finished setting up at twelve o'clock at night, but didn't wanna stay there. So I went back to my ex well, my boyfriend's house at the time. And then the next day I came in and I came down early to the like learning centre and I was like, hi, my name's Brooke Morgan. Um, I'm going to be a director. I can sing. I can songwrite. Here's my number and email. Um, I'm not allowed to have a job right now because the rent in here is too high. But here's my number and email. So any opportunity you see, please do send it on and I will be there. And I was. Yeah,
0: nice. I totally get that point when you see, you know, your friends' houses and then a much larger spaces. And you're looking back at yours and you're like, OK, this will make do. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But when I moved in with all my black bags, I had like, I had like a sea of black bags downstairs. And the manager goes, "Where are you going to put all that?" And then she came up once my room had been done, and she was like, "Where did you put all that?" And I'm like, "Well, my mum taught me to fold, so I know how to fold really good." <laughs> so it's away somewhere, yeah. There was a
0: time when I was uh, 11 years old. My family came over to the UK, only really only to study. Okay. So They planned to leave, and we. We travelled all the way up to London, and uh, my dad said that he, he had a job lined up, and that we were going to stay with our grandfather. Never happened. There was oh, a bit wow. of an argument, and uh, the job wasn't available either. So at the time, we, we packed up everything that we had. They didn't. My parents didn't have any job. they didn't have any money. Wow. Um, and so we kind of drove back down to Exeter. My mum phoned up everyone that she knew happened to have a friend in exeter that helped like basically was like yeah you can stay with us
1: wow yeah
0: um and so we stayed there for about six months following that we lodged so we were in sort of a youth hostel situation as well
1: okay
0: um until the council uh, ended up finding us a place to stay yeah. now back in the 90s if you are propositioned with the place to stay mm. you have to say yes to it
1: mm. If oh, yeah, turn that's it the down, same now.
0: Yeah, right. It's the same now, It's not homeless,
1: isn't it?
0: Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was a situation with us and there was all six of us that ended up staying in this former army barracks. So similar to your situation, I was looking at all my friends going mm. to school, mm-hmm. they had nice houses and we would go back home. You don't know any different though. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't know any different. Yeah, I can, I can relate to you on that for sure.
1: It's definitely crazy when you create your version of norm and that's why it's so important that, you know, adults external of, you know, when they say safeguarding everyone's duty, you know, adults, teachers, youth club workers, people that you just interact with that aren't family or friends of the family. It's so key that you keep an eye on things because it's the nuances of kids normal that is like, okay, is that a red flag? Like, does someone need to check in? Does someone need to tap in? Like, it's crazy.
0: You ended up working there, didn't you?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I went back to head office a y- years later and was worked up there with them. I still do a lot of their, like, press work and, like, um I now public speaking campaign. And some people like to call me an activist, but I try and stay away from the word. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the, the, the relationship continues. And yeah, there was... Potentially going to have some of my services. So, yeah, they're, they're always in talks.
0: How, how did that happen?
1: They just saw the value in what I'm doing now. So, now I have my own nonprofit organisation, community interest company that supports vulnerable young women and girls. I'm basically, supporting outdated versions of myself, really.
0: Just going back to the homelessness point, yeah. what, what is like one thing that you wish that everyone knew about homelessness?
1: Homelessness isn't stinky people on the street. Homelessness for the vast majority of people is not a conscious choice. And please be more tender with everybody because some people can make it look good. And I think that is a lot of the time what i done. Because when I came from my home... Um, you know, before life done is 180, I did have nice clothes, not designer, but I could put together even a high sheet fashion. Um, I could put it together well. And when I was in my hostel, um, I still presented a certain way because that's still who I am. I'm not going to look like what I'm going through. That may be a Caribbean thing, may not be, but that's, that's my <laughs> truth. Um, but, you know, I had, I remember not having horrible little situation not having um my zip card but I had my travel card but I needed my zip card as well um and I said to the woman oh I'm actually homeless like she was like yeah I've heard that before go on and proceeded to call the police on me and it's like wow
0: did you come across that a lot
1: not a lot because it it was never anything I overtly had to felt like I had to say Mm mm-hmm but I was just so tired that day. I, I, I'd i been trying. I think it was when I was looking for a job. I'd been trying and like knocking doors and being optimistic. And that just gets tiring. Um, and I was on my way home and got stopped. But the travel card I had was bloody way more expensive than the goddamn zip card I had. The zip card was like £10. The travel card was like £200 with my name on it. And she was like, no, sorry, we have to call the police. And I'm like, oh. that's cringe. Yeah, we move. You got through it. We got through it. I'm here to tell the story.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it's a really inspiring one. Now you've set up a company, She Oath. Yeah. Tell us more.
1: So uh, She Oath is my baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a community interest company that focuses on improving the quality of life of girls and women with a focus on vulnerable girls and women. And we work to kind of instill authentic confidence uh, we give young people a strong internal GPS and self-assured mindset. And yeah, really, we do that in the way of programmes, uh, workshops, events, coaching, um, because I'm a qualified coach and mental health first aider um, and then clothing and hair support. So, yeah, that's currently what, what I'm doing.
0: You're really paying it forward then?
1: Yeah, yeah. Historically, I've worked in the music and media industry, but um, the pandemic hit, I was put on furlough. Um, I was put on furlough from an amazing music management company. Um, and they were still actually paying me a hundred percent of my salary. So then I was like, Let me try she oath while I do this, between like answering a couple of emails here and there. And they i done it. I ran my first flagship program in the pandemic virtually. There was people from Poland that signed up. There was people from Quebec, Canada that signed up. There was people in Leeds that signed up and across the UK. Um, So for my first try, I was super, super proud of myself. The young women in the program were super engaged. Um, The content was helpful from the feedback that we got. Yeah. And then launch a COVID initiative um, called she speaks, which was a conversational support system, and through there, the young women that came through there are doing all amazing things. Yeah, so just we're at the stage where I'm trying to make it sustainable now financially. So oh, with my dyslexic self trying to get funding, which funding applications are like <laughs> the bane of my existence.
0: Give oh, um, up with that. Hey. Yeah,
1: just trying, just trying. Where does the
0: name come from? Like She
1: she Oath. She Oath. So I heard it on the bus going home. Really? From running like this, my first ever workshop. I was like, mum, I've got it. The name is She Oath. And I'm going to give everyone a piece of my confidence. So the undercurrent of everything we teach is authentic confidence. But. I, like, heard it. Whenever people say this, I think, oh, be quiet, creative rubbish. Um, but I literally heard it on the bus. I was like, she oath. And then as I heard it, I was like, mum, she oath. And then I started explaining it. We was in a conversation. I literally just cut her. Mum, she oath. The oath she makes to her herself, regardless of external stipulations. And then as I'm saying it, I'm like, she oath, she oath. Yeah, because a lot of time as women we become our best versions because of a guy or a girl that we're seeing or because of, you know, our kids or because of a job that we want to achieve or because of a car that we want to buy. But what happens if she became her best version for herself with nothing attached to it? What would the landscape of women look like? So, you know, one of my aims is to change the culture of what it means to be a young girl or a woman in the digital age.
0: What what sort of age group typically do you work with?
1: We tell funders 16 to 25. Okay. But I've helped 14-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 34-year-olds. Nice. Um, when I meet women that are older than me, not old, but older than me, 40-year-olds, uh, 50-year-olds, they go, goodness me, I could do with being on that programme. So, you know, for me, um, ultimately She Oath will be globally recognised and respected, and it will just be a female brand um, for self-betterment. Um, that's the vision that's the vision that's where yeah. we're going so you know it will be master classes it will be seminars it will be pop-ups it will be panels it will be stuff like this podcast it will be programs it will be the space where you come to receive intergenerational connections organically when we don't come from you know uh, middle class and upper class families you know where mummy and daddy's having lunch with the CEO of X, Y and Z um, we lack the introductions um, and then when you don't have the authentic confidence and just confidence in general, you're not going to go to a networking event because where are your values? Uh, do you feel like you're worthy to be in a room with people that are so high when you don't come from that? Um, you know, so I'm just dismantling their their value systems and getting them to build new ones, but then introducing them to a Wes who has his own podcast, who's done X, Y and Z or that they would never be in the room with this person. Um, But through my connections and the people that I've met and the women that kind of are championing me and holding me up, um, giving them access.
0: Do you want to talk about authentic confidence? You mentioned it a couple of times. What does it mean?
1: Um, I think confidence is the ability to believe in your skill set. Authentic confidence is believing in your being. To me, this is my definition. Uh, authentic confidence is believing in your being regardless of adversity or of skill set. So it is, I'm authentically confident in myself so I can be authentically confident in she I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I know I'm going to do it because I've said so. And that is all I need to know. I'm going to ask, I'm going to bang on doors, um, but that doesn't show me how I'm going to do it. Uh, you know, if they if they said, oh, what's the strategy for she well there isn't one because it isn't made yet but I know what I need to do I see the need and I'm going to do something about it instead of being you know and I never knock academia and I never discredit theory but instead of being so caught up in theory um that you know oh well theoretically well guess what I'm a lived experience leader and it just doesn't go like that um you know I've been on loads of programs and you know they have this great idea from this somebody that wants to do something amazing and it just doesn't go like that you know so I think yeah I'm just gonna I'm just gonna figure it out and it's gonna work because I'm authentically confident
0: I love that i I think when I hear you say that it it makes me feel like. It's you being true to your values mm. and and true to yourself, mm. which I think is really lovely. Yeah. It actually links in really nicely because I know that you've helped out quite a few people and you've done a lot with Sheet Oath. And I re- want to read this quote to get your opinion on it. And it goes like this. It's a, an assistant interior designer that helps context. I've come so far and at such a young age, which is crazy, I owe a lot to She Oath because I didn't have the self-assurance that I did a year ago. How's that make you feel?
1: That's my baby. That is my baby. And, you know, her, her her career has nothing to do with my career and that's why it's so important that we teach authentic confidence because authentic confidence allows you to morph and to shape into whatever you want to be and whatever you want to do a lot of these other programs not knocking them but they teach something and they push their agenda i'm teaching something that is so if you put it in your foundation you can apply it to every and anything You know, and that can propel you and your trajectory any and any way you want to go. I'm not here to teach you how to be a freelance assistant director, which is what I do, or, you know, how to work in the media industry or how to work in the music industry. I'm teaching you how to be you. And I don't think a lot of people do that.
0: You're there to help others achieve their potential.
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I love that. So growing up, did you ever think that you'd become the role model that you are today? Do you see yourself as a role model?
1: Little Sims has said this. I see myself as a real model. I'm not going to apply the pressure of being something um, that to some people may look like perfection because I'm not. I I don't see myself to be modelled after. I see myself as me living me and I encourage and implore people to live them. You can take on some of the mantras that I subscribe to in order for me to be a go-getter in order for me to be resilient, in order for me to, you know, be able to pick myself up again. But don't model yourself off of me because, baby, I'm making mistakes. <laughs> and I do not want anyone to come behind me and say, I followed you, I made them mistake. Don't do, don't do, don't follow me, don't follow me. I'm out here trying to figure it out as well. And days get dark and days get hard for me as well. So I'm just not perfect and I don't try to be. So,
0: There's a great saying called, uh, it's progress, not perfection.
1: There we go. And I think there's only one way from perfect. So I never want to be perfect because once you get to perfect, tu- 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 tu, you only come back down. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know.
0: For all the things that you've done mm. from a starting point that was definitely behind a lot of people, mm. can you ever look back and go, wow, we've achieved so much?
1: Yeah. I, I, oh, I this is going to sound weird as well. Whenever I hear people say this, I think, oh, be quiet. A lot of the time <laughs> I... am. Um, I step out of myself, not in like a, ooh, I'm a ghost. But if I analyse my... Because I'm very self-critical, not always critical, but self-analytical, because I'm always trying to be better. So when I step out of myself and analyse myself from a logical perspective um, and from the perspective of if I wasn't me but I was on-looking me, what would that be like? And even when I come into my house... Um, there'll be times sporadically I've been at my house now in my place for five years now but I can still come in and almost feel like I want to cry because wow I've really done this like coming from where I came from you know my bedroom was the whole room that I was in my bed my living room's now bigger than that how I've designed it how I've created it the vision that I had that being able to come out of my head and to be able to be real tangible touchable wow but gratitude comes over me, and that's the part of me that wants me to feels like I want to cry because then I was able to gain my mum back. Because when I moved in, it was my mum and I, and we was getting all of our stuff and we was painting the house, and you know what I mean. So, yeah, incredibly grateful, um, and it is wow. If I wasn't me, I would think bloody hell, she's done quite a bit. Well done, girl.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> this is one of the reasons why we're putting on this podcast is to speak to people like you to inspire others um, who perhaps haven't had the the greatest start in life either. Mm.
1: And Um, I just want to, I think it's really important for me to say, you know, this all looks wow. This wouldn't be as wow if I was just in the musical, the media industry, right? This is wow because I became homeless at 16. This is wow because I was raped at 17. This is wow because I had mental health. This is wow because I still struggle with eating disorders, some psychological thing in my brain. That's why this is wild. This is wild because all of my darkest moments and I've been able to pivot and get back to some sort of normal. That's why this is well. So I just want to encourage people to never look at your hard points as like, oh, this is the end of me. Why me? Your hard points may be a talking point for you, may be the encouraging point where you can pull someone along and where you can normalise these things. Because homelessness, mental health, isn't happening to monsters in the cracks of corners. It's happening to very normal people, people that you pass, people that you sit next to, people that you, you know what I mean? Sure. So we need to, I mean, not encourage it and invite it, but we need to normalise it because it's very normal.
0: Do you think that whole experience, mm. having to go through all of those threat things,
1: mm.
0: have kind of shaped you to become the entrepreneur that you are today?
1: Yeah, because I didn't... It's definitely shaped me because I didn't, She Oath, even now, I didn't plan for She Oath to be a business. It wouldn't be a business without the homelessness, without the trauma. She Oath wouldn't be anything without trauma. She Oath was birthed out of trauma, but it was also birthed out of me doing the healing that was needed to be done to overcome the trauma, to make peace with the trauma. And I guess it's just me teaching outdated versions of myself, really, how to do that, how to survive.
0: Because I can definitely see the entrepreneurial spirit in you. And I remember when you came in, we had a little chat about She Oath as well and uh, trying to shine a spotlight on that business. Yeah. And I'm loving what you're doing as well. What are the plans for the future?
1: Oh, I've got so much! I like to do. I like to bounce around because I get bored easy. So um, I've literally just acted in a friend's short film. Okay, um, cool. I'll, I'll send you that. That's called Black Tea. That was amazing. Originally, when I was little, I wanted to be an actress. Didn't like my two front teeth, so I said, if I ever straighten my two front teeth, I'll get onto acting. Got braces, <laughs> straighten my two front teeth. Now me show little films being showed at the BFI. So that's amazing. Had the premiere for that. I'm really trying to do more hosting, more of this stuff. I currently do public speaking. I am doing business coaching. She Earth needs to become financially s- sustainable. That's the aim for us. Um, so we can run our services year in, year out without, like, kind of stopping and scrambling around for money.
0: And you're trying to find funding now?
1: Yeah, yeah, in, in the midst of trying to find funding. And then should be. I'll have you as a guest on my podcast when it comes up. <laughs>
0: More than happy to. I'd but love yeah, to.
1: Yeah, so just just staying busy, really. Whatever comes my way, um, I'm always going to say yes as long as I'm safe in it. And I'll do it. And if I don't like it, I won't do it again.
0: So if it, someone needs your services, then where, where can they find you?
1: I mean, you can have my email. <laughs> uh, no, you can get me on Instagram. So I'm brookmorgan.co and she oath is just at she oath, S-H-E-O-A-T-H.
0: Nice. So I've got a couple of closing questions, if that's okay with you. What advice would you give to someone who grew up in similar circumstances to you and feels like that is holding them back?
1: I always say this, my lens is my biggest asset, my biggest and best asset, because I can always grow it. Being homeless wasn't the end for me. It was a springboard because I was catapulted into something different. Having mental health enabled me to stop and enabled me to be with my deepest and darkest parts of myself. Being assaulted enabled me to understand the ugly parts of the world but then in contrast it enabled me to appreciate all the beautiful people in the world a lot stronger. And having eaten struggles... I don't know what that's done for me because it's something that I still work through. But what I will say is it enables me to learn because I haven't yet learned the lesson. So there's always a good and a bad to everything. The bad enables you to learn and the good enables you to feel good, which is ultimately what everybody's out here trying to do. So it doesn't hold you back unless you look at it in the way of holding you back. But there's always something to do. And I think when you have bad times, that is times for you to learn lessons and to be able to teach the next. So She Oath is so that... She Oath is the product of my trauma not being in vain. If I had to sit with all of this and could do nothing with it, could not encourage another person because of it, I think it would eat me up. For sure. And that, But that's me, so everybody doesn't need to take their trauma and put it on parade to help the next person, but do whatever you need to do in order for you to make yourself at peace with it.
0: I love that. I've got one more question. Yeah. Uh, How would you like to be remembered in years to come?
1: My mission in life is to be a catalyst for positive change and I've done it. So if I, it sounds so morbid, but if I die tomorrow, i would die happy because I started something And I helped at least one person. So I've done it. I guess I'm not dead because I've got more to do. But (laughs) when I go, um, I want to be remembered as being a catalyst for positive change.
0: That's amazing. And that is a lovely way to end the podcast. Brooke Morgan, thank you so much. Thank you.